Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're traveling in South America and you're in this remote village and you come to the marketplace and you see this beautiful carved figure, traditional artwork from the area. You think to yourself, well, that might be nice to buy. I take it home as a souvenir, put it on the shelf in the living room, a reminder of our trip to South America. And as you turn this piece of this craft uh, over in your hands, you look on the bottom and it says, made in China. Well, that's disappointing, isn't it? As we come to our text this morning, as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ teaching the Sermon on the Mount, something similar is happening here. The scribes taught the law of Moses in excruciating detail. And the Pharisees were so proud of how they lived out all the regulations of the law. They had this whole system of law teaching and law keeping, which they understood to be accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. The Shema, hear, O Israel, which I read after the law this morning there in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. That was to them, when they repeated it, accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. And they were zealous to live in obedience to the commandments. They counted up all the commandments in the Torah. They came to 613 commandments of the Lord in the first five books of the Old Testament. And then around those commandments in Scripture, they placed the fence, the fence of the oral law, the regulations and the rituals which were put around the law so that you couldn't even get close to breaking the law itself. And what was the result of all of this? Well, the result was superficial and external. It was a religion not of the heart, but a religion which was outward. It was a religion of doing the right rituals. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes were really impressed with this work of art. And they despised people that didn't come up to their level. At one point they say in the Gospels, they speak of the crowds, the regular members of the people of God, that crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Imagine that. Imagine the elders and deacons and the minister walking into church and looking at you, looking down their noses at you and saying, you guys are not good enough. We're the best. That was what the Pharisees were doing. That was their religion. Well, Jesus was not impressed with, the, well, with what they had come up with. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. They look nice and clean and good and neat and tidy on the outside, but in the inside they're filled with dead men's bones and every kind of impurity. And so this glorious structure of the scribes and the Pharisees with all the rules, all the rituals, which look so holy and right, Jesus took that. And he turned it upside down. And he points out in the Sermon on the Mountain, in all of his ministry, what is written on the bottom of that great big project. Made in hell. And the proof of that is throughout the Gospels in Jesus' ministry and teaching. And it's right here in our text. Look there at the end of our text. 
Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which means that the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees does not give entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Their whole system was made in hell. Now, in the first 16 verses of this chapter, the Lord Jesus taught us. He taught the people there in the first century that being a Christian, that being a child of God, that being in the kingdom is not in the first place what you do, but it is who you are. And Jesus took a wrecking ball to the whole system of legalism of the Pharisees. All of his ministry, all of his teaching just destroyed, demolished this structure that they had so carefully built up over the centuries. Now, the question then arose, as people saw him, as people heard him, the question arose, well, what is this radical new rabbi doing? Is he doing away with the law? Ever since the exile, the return from the exile, Phariseeism and legalism had grown and grown and grown because the people of God were saying, we don't want to go through that again. We don't want to be sent into exile and suffer again, so, so we need to really keep the law. And suddenly there's this new rabbi who seems to be saying that we don't have to do it anymore. And we may wonder as well, what is the Lord Jesus saying? Is he saying what a lot of carnal minded people that call themselves Christians say today that it doesn't matter what you do. It's what's inside that counts. It sounds like a recipe for easygoing, lax, and immoral religion. And so the Lord Jesus Christ in our text makes it clear. I'm not saying that righteousness is unnecessary. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that any so-called righteousness based on human effort is a joke, it is a fiction, it is useless, because true righteousness is to keep the whole law the whole time. It is to have God's will as your delight. It is to have God's law day and night in your heart and your soul. And this kind of righteousness cannot be gained by human effort. It must be given. And we saw that last week. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is passive. They don't satisfy themselves. They don't get it themselves. They are satisfied. It is a gift of sovereign grace, the righteousness of the gospel. And, and you remember we just sang that in Psalm 18. He says, your perfect righteousness I will proclaim, not his own. And so it is a gift of sovereign grace. The Lord Jesus in our text says, I am not here to do away with, to abolish the law. I am here to fulfill it. Now, we need to understand some of the terms here. When the Lord Jesus speaks about the law and the prophets, he is referring to what we know as the Old Testament. The Jews would distinguish in the Old Testament three sections, the law, which was the first five books, the Torah, and the prophets, 
and then, which included the books of Kings and Samuel, and then the writings or the wisdom books, which are Psalms and Proverbs and other books like them. So those were the, the three sections, which sometimes you hear people talking about the Tanakh, T-N-K, and those are the first letters of those three sections in the Hebrew language. So when the Lord Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, everybody listening to him in this sermon, they know what he's talking about. He's talking about the Word of God, which up to that time was just the Old Testament, the entire Word of God. And sometimes, or often, it can be referred to simply as the law. Somewhere in the Gospels, or somewhere in the New Testament, uh, there is a reference to one of the Psalms, and, and it is introduced in this way. It is written in the law, and then there's a quote from the Psalm. Now, the Psalm is, is, is in the third section of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's, it's in the wisdom uh, section, but the law is a shorthand for the entire Old Testament. It means the Word of God. And so what the Lord Jesus is saying is this. God's Word, all of it, will be accomplished. God's Word, all of it, stands forever. Now, Jesus, after his resurrection, as he's walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, he expounds to them everything that is written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms about him. And so what Jesus is saying in our text is that everything that is written about him will come to pass. And if you read through Matthew, you see how Matthew emphasizes that. Matthew already up to this point, we're in chapter 5, as you look back and scan through the first chapters, you see how often Matthew says, this happened to fulfill what was written by the prophet. And all of Jesus' life was like that, from his birth, his conception, his birth, to his death. You remember what he said on the cross. He didn't just say, I thirst, because he was thirsty. He was thirsty. But the Bible says, Jesus, so that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Because it had been prophesied in the Old Testament that he would thirst and say that on the cross. And so the Lord Jesus tells us that everything written in the Word of God comes to its fullness, its truth, its culmination in his person and in his work. And then he continues, he says, verse 18, for truly I say to you, Another word truly in the Greek is amen, which is a Hebrew word, amen. And amen just means truth. It is true. It is certain. The Lord Jesus is using this word in a very unusual way. Normally, throughout the scriptures, throughout the history of God's people, amen comes after. Somebody says something, the listeners evaluate to see and to hear and to discern whether it is the Word of God or not, and in, uh, and in accordance with the Word of God. And if it is, they say, Amen. But Jesus doesn't do it that way. Because Jesus is the Word of God, because Jesus is very God of very God, because Jesus is the Word of God incarnate, whatever he says is the Word of God, so he's the only one that can begin his sentences with, Amen. Because he knows that whatever is going to be said afterwards is certainly God's truth. Truly, I say to you, amen, I say to you. 
Now, notice what he says here. He says, I say to you. Now, this was radically different from how the scribes and the Pharisees would teach. The scribes and the Pharisees would say, well, Moses says this, and God says this through Moses, or Rabbi so-and-so said this. And so they were always invoking, especially the names of Moses and the rabbis. Jesus cuts through all of that and says, I say. This was very, very unusual. The prophets throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of God's people, would come and say, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. And your preachers today can only be on the pulpit if they say those words. This is what the Lord says. And if we ever have someone on the pulpit that says, this is what I say, then the elders will remove him immediately. But Jesus can say that. Jesus says, I say to you. He speaks with authority. And you see that at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 7, that the people were astounded at his teaching because he didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees, but he taught as one who had authority. And with the authority of the word of God, the Lord Jesus proclaims that not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the, the iota is the smallest letter in Greek. It's a little I. And in Hebrew, the letter closest to it is the, the yot, which is like a little apostrophe. It's a very, very small letter, like a little apostrophe. The smallest letter in the Hebrew language. And, and the dot here, we have the translation dot, but it, the actual word is, is little horn. And it would be Maybe just the printers amongst us will understand what I'm saying here, but it will be the, the little marks, the little serif marks on the, on the, on the, on the letters. You, there, if you do desktop publishing, you have serif fonts and, and sans serif fonts. And so some of them are clean letters and some of them have little, little marks on the ends of the letters. So the Lord Jesus is referring to the tiniest little marks. In the Hebrew language, you can have a tiny, tiny little mark which can make all the difference between one letter and another. Think of the word A. Think of the word A in your mind, typed out, and then make the little stroke on the right-hand side go up a little further. Suddenly you have a D, right? You make the A into a D by making the, the line a little longer. But in the Hebrew language, the line that's even smaller, the line that you need to make to make the difference between one letter and another. So the Lord Jesus is saying this. Every tiny detail, Every letter of God's word with every tiny mark in the original manuscripts is the very word of God. It is trustworthy, it stands, and it will stand now and until the end of time. No exceptions. Until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished. Those are the two, uh, those are the two criteria which he gives for when the law will finally pass away. Heaven and earth have to pass away, so it's the last day, and all is accomplished. Everything prophesied and said in the, in the Word of God will have come to pass, will have come to fruition. And that's much of the testimony of the New Testament. The New Testament is not a brand new book with a brand new start of a brand new religion. A lot of people begin with the New Testament when they want to evangelize. New Tribes Missions used to, for many, many years, translate the New Testament as they went into the depths of the jungle to 
evangelize people and win them for Christ. And they found out after years and years of working that it didn't work. Because the New Testament makes no sense if you have no Old Testament. How can you bring good news to people that don't know the bad news? If people don't know about Genesis 1, that God created the heavens and the earth and he must be worshipped. If people don't know about Genesis 3, that man fell into sin and that God promised a savior. If people don't know the Old Testament, the New Testament makes no sense at all. And so what we have in the New Testament is not a brand new thing. You read the New Testament, see how often it's quoting the Old Testament. It's expounding the Old Testament. It's alluding to the Old Testament. Much of the New Testament is simply showing us how God's promises in the Old Testament have been fulfilled, are being fulfilled, and will be fulfilled in Christ. Someone once said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And so what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying is that every single promise of God made in the Scriptures will come to pass. Not one of them will fall to the earth. Not one of them will fail to be accomplished, but they will all be fulfilled until the final day. Well, those are the prophecies, and we can understand that. We can, we can, we can comprehend that. But what about the law parts, all the laws in the Old Testament? Do they stand until the end of time as well? Because doesn't the Bible say, Romans 6, 14, you are not under the law, but under grace? And doesn't the Apostle John say, or doesn't, this, doesn't the Scripture say in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And if we read texts like that, I don't want to be under the law, I want to be under grace. I don't want to be under the law of Moses, I want the grace and the truth that come through Jesus Christ. And so there are many Christians that abandon the Old Testament, that abandon the law, because they think that that's what it means to be a Christian. But the Lord Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. When he speaks of the law and the prophets, he's not just speaking about the pro prophecies, he's speaking about Leviticus as well, and Numbers, Exodus, Deuteronomy. He's speaking about all the regulations and the rules that God has put down in his word. So how are we to understand this, that Jesus says they stand and they are not abolished, but they stand until the end of time? Well, we need to understand what the law is. Law can refer to different things as you read through the scriptures. You have to understand the context. Sometimes, as we already mentioned, law just simply refers to the whole Old Testament, to the whole word of God. Sometimes law refers specifically to the ceremonies and the rituals and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. And so you have to, when you read the word law in the Scripture, in the New Testament, you need to stop and figure out, is this in the broader sense or in the more narrow sense? Now, law is really the blueprint of the kingdom of God. You, you don't need law where there is no sin. Adam and Eve didn't have a great big book of do's and don'ts. They just, God said, go and be my children. Have a wonderful time developing the world, enjoying the world, and, and having, um, enjoying the growth of, of, of your family. There was only one rule that you were not to eat from that one tree. That was the rule. 
They didn't need a law saying thou shalt not kill because that would not come into their minds. That's like your parents saying at the breakfast table, there's a new rule, you shall not feed the pets to the anaconda. Why would your parents make up a rule like that if there's no anaconda in the house? It doesn't make sense. Now, if you've gone out and you've brought a few anacondas into the house, then suddenly you need a rule against that kind of thing. And so in, in paradise, there was no rule against murder because murder simply was not something that you could even cogitate. When sin comes into the world, suddenly you need rules because the snakes of sin are writhing everywhere in this corrupted world and suddenly you need rule upon rule upon rule upon rule. And so the law of God is the blueprint for the kingdom of God. It draws out for us how things are supposed to be. The law itself cannot change things. It cannot bring us back to paradise. It cannot bring about heaven on earth. It cannot give grace. The law can only say, well, this is how it's supposed to be. And you're not like that. And the world is not like that. The law can only accuse. The law can only condemn. So that every mouth is stopped and the whole world is held accountable to God. There is no righteousness through the law because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so that's how the law serves throughout the whole Old Testament dispensation as God draws out the picture of the kingdom, says this is what it looks like, and as God's people look at their lives and, say, and look at the world around them and say, well, we're certainly not there yet. This is not what it looks like in our lives, and this is what it's supposed to look like. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they looked at that blueprint and they said, ah, we can do that. We can do that with a bit of spit and polish, a bit of elbow grease, a bit of, you know, determination. We can build to spec. We can take this blueprint and we can build the kingdom of God through our own sweat and blood and toil and tears. Well, we know what happened. It didn't work. It reminds me of a pastor in Recife, the, the city where I, I worked for many years. He decided to build a few apartment buildings with the money of the church to have a, another stream of income for the congregation. And after a few years, those apartment buildings fell down and a few people died. Now, the reason is, is because the pillars holding up these buildings instead of being solid concrete with rebar, they had concrete, they had construction debris and garbage in them, and they just had a thin layer of, of cement around them to make them look nice, and they had some thin wire, you know those, I don't know the technical term, the construction guys would know it, but the, the, those wire grids, you know, chicken wire, a little bit thicker than that, that was in there, but there was no these, they didn't have the big, thick steel rebars that needed to hold up the building. And so it all looked nice on the outside, but it couldn't do the job, and the buildings fell down. And that is what happened to the great big structures that the Pharisees and scribes built. They looked good on the outside, but they failed totally. And the Lord Jesus Christ is saying this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, look, I have come to build the kingdom to spec." I have come to build what these blueprints draw out, what they present. I've come to build it perfectly. I've come to fulfill it perfectly in every 
aspect. And now we need to quickly run through what some of us have already learned in catechism, the three aspects of the law in the scriptures in the Old Testament, the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral, because there are different types of laws, and we need to understand how the Lord Jesus fulfills them in different ways. So the ceremonial laws talk about the sacrifices and and what kind of clothes the priest has to wear and and when they do the different feasts and feast days and all the different uh, animals they have to kill and in what way. And the ceremonial laws had to do with the fact that sin has to be paid for. The ceremonial law was telling God's people, you shall surely die. That is the sentence upon sin. Blood must be shed. There must be a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so all of the ceremonies, the the rituals, the sacrifices were crying out for Jesus. We need somebody to die, to pay the price of sin, and to free us from the guilt of sin. And in the New Testament, we have an entire book which says, well, Jesus fulfilled that. And that book is the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews talks about the shadows and the copies of the things here on earth and that Jesus has come with the real thing. He has fulfilled in every detail perfectly the blueprint of the ceremonies in the Old Testament. Jesus dug a hole in the earth and he laid himself down in it in his death as the cornerstone upon which the church of God is built. And so that, that foundation is already laid. And when the foundation is laid and you have the blueprints for the foundation, what's more important, the real thing or, or the picture on paper? Obviously, the real thing's there already. The foundation's laid. The work has been done. What are the blueprints good for? Well... If you know your stuff, you can look at the blueprints and you can look at the work and you can evaluate, is this really the same thing? Has it been done well? And that's what we do when we, when we look at Leviticus. We look at these blueprints and, and we say, well, look at that. Look at all the details. And look how the Lord Jesus perfectly fulfilled these details in every aspect. And the more we study the blueprints, the more we glorify him for his finished work. The foundation is laid but we don't have to keep doing those things anymore. They are fulfilled. So those are the ceremonial laws. Then we have the civil laws. These are political laws that have to do with kings and and rules, for instance, that today would be bylaws. For instance, if you build a house with a flat roof, you have to put a parapet around it so people don't fall off. Now, most of us don't have flat roofs, so that law doesn't really apply to us. And the rules about kings and so, that was specifically for the theocratic nation of Israel. We don't live in a theocratic state. These laws don't apply directly to our lives. But the truth and the substance of them is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. He is the perfect example of the true king. And even those strange little rules about daily life in the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, Even though the the externals of those rules don't apply to our lives, the core truths and the principles in them still instruct us today about God's will in our situation. And so today there may be laws which say if you've got a swimming pool, you need to put a fence around it so that somebody doesn't stumble into it and drown. 
That's the same kind of principle that we apply in our situation today, the wisdom of God's word. So the ceremonial laws and the civil laws are not laws that we uh, have imposed upon us in our day-to-day life in the New Testament. They have been fulfilled, or some of them, the political laws, are no longer relevant to our situation. And then we have the moral law, and that is the Ten Commandments and all the exposition of them in the Old Testament. And the moral law describes the character of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You remember, we read it every Sunday. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're free now. Now, this is what it looks like to live. The New Testament calls the law of God the perfect law of liberty. It is not a new enslavement, but it is freedom to live in Christ and for Christ. And so the moral law, the Ten Commandments and all the outworkings of the Ten Commandments, describe who we are in Christ. They describe love for God and and love for the neighbor. And the coming of Christ does not abolish these laws. It reinforces them. That without holiness, you cannot see the Lord. That without righteousness, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So when the Lord Jesus says, I will not abolish the law, I will fulfill it, he's reminding us that we must be like him. You remember what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You remember the charge that he gives to the apostles when he gives them the Great Commission. They have to go out and and preach and teach and baptize, and then they have to teach the disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. That is the Christian life. It is living according to the will of God. And that's why Christ says, What he says there in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling us, look, I've kept the law. I have submitted totally to God's will. And if you are in me, and if I am in you, if you are my disciple, then you will do the same thing. So Christ does not allow us, look carefully at what he says, he doesn't allow us to say, well, that is just something which is not as important. That's not a salvation issue, so it's not really important. No, everything's important. We may come to different conclusions, and then we need to struggle with that. The Bible talks about uh, questions of conscience and weaker Christians and stronger Christians, but we can never say that's not important. Every one of us must, in our own hearts and minds, be sure in our conscience, that we are striving to honor the Lord in every little detail of our lives, even if sometimes we come to different conclusions and have uh, a good debate about that. doesn't mean to say we're all going to always do exactly the same thing in the same way, but we can never say it's not important. It always is. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no room for people who downplay any one of God's holy commands. So we come to verse 20. Jesus is showing us the radical character of citizenship in the kingdom. That we need a righteousness which is perfect. That we need a scrupulous righteousness. And it must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It must surpass. And the word used here 
it means it has to abundantly and overflowingly surpass in exceeding measure the rigorous, detailed, external righteousness of the scribes. It must be a massive, overflowing, abundant righteousness. And it must not be something which is just painted on, but it must be who you are. You must be perfectly righteous. You must be able to sing and say what we sang and what we said in Psalm 18, where we, we, we said these words, that my righteousness the Lord my God has rewarded. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has granted me his gracious recompense. I have not from his holy laws departed. Before him I was blameless and pure-hearted. I have committed no iniquity. That's what we've got to be able to say. Well, how can we possibly say that? Is this a little frightening when we hear the Lord Jesus Christ set this before us? You know, last week, he set before us the radical character of kingdom citizenship. And that was a very high thing that he set before us. And then this week, he comes and he tells us the radical righteousness which he demands. And we may think to ourselves, help the Lord Jesus Christ is calling me to something which I cannot do. How can I be like that? How can I be like those, those Beatitudes described? How can I have a perfect righteousness as he commands me to have here? You know, one of the most common words that I've heard in the last few months in response to the preaching is the word convicted. I, I, I've been convicted. I feel convicted. As a preacher, I find that very distressing, if that's all there is. Because being convicted is a part of being a Christian. It's the first part of the catechism. You know you're a sinner. You know that before God, outside of Christ, all you deserve, all we deserve, is his righteous judgment. And when the law comes and is set before you, you say, well, I have no hope in myself. And I have not attained to the perfect righteousness that God demands of me. That's being convicted. But that's not enough. The preaching cannot just convict us. The preaching must drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how I long to hear that God's people would come out of church and say, I have seen, set before my eyes, my perfect righteousness that I have. And that I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the good news. And that's my job. And if you're not getting that, then tell me. Because I have to change the way I preach. We need to see Christ. And no one else. We need an overflowingly abundant righteousness. Which is far more than that weak beggarly human effort of the scribes and Pharisees. Christ calls us away from that. He calls us away from the fake, from the ersatz, from the cheap imitation righteousness of human traditions and legalism and human effort. It is no righteousness at all. It is a one-way ticket to hell. And if that's the fumes of Christianity upon which you are traveling through life, if you're traveling through the fumes of the traditions of your parents and grandparents, if you're showing up at church and going through the motions, but your heart isn't in it, 
Your heart is not captured with the, the vision of the glory of God's love for you in Christ. If it's not being driven by a changed heart, then all the outward stuff is useless. It's just deceiving you. It's lulling you to sleep. That's what the devil wants. He wants us to get into the train carriage of the church, pay our fare, and tell the conductor to wake me up when we get there. If that's the way we're living our lives, we're going to be surprised when we get to the destination. Well, this is the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is the gospel. Christ presents himself as our righteousness. Christ offers himself to you as the one who has fulfilled the law perfectly. That's why the psalmist could sing what he sang. He said, I've got a pure heart, got clean hands. Well, he knew he was a sinner. David said, I've been a sinner since I was conceived, since I was born, I've been a sinner. But he said, I'm, I've got clean hands, I've got a pure heart. Because he went to the temple. And he participated in the offerings. And he saw the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ displayed in the animal which was being slain, the blood which was being poured out. And he trusted in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and said, despite all my mistakes and all my failures and all my falling short, I am perfect in Christ, in the Messiah. And if he could have that assurance way before Jesus came and actually fulfilled those shadows. How much more we can have that confidence, brothers and sisters. Let us hunger and thirst after Christ, our righteousness, because Christ is our satisfaction. He is the one who comes to us by his word and by his spirit, who takes out our cold, dead, sinful heart of stone, and who gives us a new heart, and who writes his law upon it. You see, he writes his law. He promised to do that, and he's done it. He writes his law upon our hearts so that we are no longer under the law because the law is in us. It is not above us, accusing and threatening and condemning, but it is in us. It's part of who we are. It is the delight of our soul. That's what Christ has done for us. And so the gospel is not try to be a good person and try not to do bad things. And if you fail, try harder again this week. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ is good. Christ has died, and the old you died with him. Christ has been raised, and the new you has been raised with him. This is the gospel Christ our righteousness, Christ in you, Christ the hope of glory. And this is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, people go to the Sermon on the Mount, they skip, or they look at the Beatitudes by themselves, and then they jump around looking at the different rules that the Lord Jesus sets out. They say, well, this is how you've got to deal with divorce, and this is how you've got to do, deal with uh, when you've got anger issues, and these are the rules of the New Testament church about oaths, and this is how you deal with lust. You can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. You have to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in light of what we've looked at already. You have to see it in Christ. Jesus is not telling us these are the things you have to do. Jesus is explaining to us 
this is what you're going to look like. When it is no longer you who live, but I, Christ, who live in you. This is the theme of the gospel. This is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It is not what you do in the first place. It is not the traditions you follow. It is not the sacrifices you make, but it is who you are. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When God opens your ear and your heart to his word, when the glories of the age to come fill your soul, and when the Father and the Son come to make their home in you by the Spirit, then you can sing with all your heart what we're about to sing together. You can sing with all your heart those words that the prophet put on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. No sacrifice did you, O Lord, require, but you gave me an open ear. I said, I've come. See, I am here, O God, to do your will as my desire. Now take my life and mold it. I've come, the book foretold it. It's written in the, in the scroll. Your will is my delight. Your law is day and night within my heart and soul. These are the words of the Messiah. These are your words, Christian, when you are in him and he is in you. And then together with Jesus, you can say, before the congregation I profess, the love and truth you have revealed. My lips, O Lord, I have not sealed. My heart has not concealed your righteousness. For everywhere I've spoken of faithfulness unbroken, of blessings from above, the great assembly heard of your trustworthy word and of your steadfast love. Amen.